Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17 this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. We've been in it now two years and uh, we're already almost in chapter 18. I found a cartoon that said, the rat race is over, the rats won. It was a little commentary on how intimidating the world can seem sometimes. It can seem scary to us. I want to read a news article to you. The world is too big for us. There's too much going on. Too many crimes. Too much violence. Try as you will, you get behind in the race. It's an incessant strain to keep pace. You still lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure much longer. That's an article from June 16th, 1833. It's a news article written 178 years ago that sounds like it could have been written this week. Political intrigue, wars going on, information explosion, etc. The deal is, is that in every generation, with our own context, we see the world as filled with pressure. It's not a friendly place, we discover. Here's another headline from the Boston Globe. This is November 13th, 1857. Listen to this. Front page. Energy crisis looms. Energy crisis looms. Here's the subheading, though. The world may go dark since whale blubber is so scarce. Now, what do you do with headlines like that? What did people do with headlines like that? Energy crisis looms. Oh, no, no whale blubber. Well, they did a few things. Some people actually left Boston. They thought, if there's no whale blubber, I'm toast. I'm going to go to the country. I'm going to get a wood-burning stove. I'm going to become very independent. Other people decided, let's stay in town. Let's be part of the solution. Let's work toward alternate forms of energy. Let's work this thing through. Maybe we're too dependent upon whale blubber. You see, the pressures in our world tend to make us either isolationists or integrationists. On one hand, it will make some people flee. I'm leaving. I've got to get out. I've got to join a monastery. Other people will say, I want to be a missionary. I want to do something about this. We're in John chapter 17. We begin in verse 11. Jesus is praying to his father. It's the high priestly prayer. Jesus talking to God the father about his disciples. We get to eavesdrop on a little bit of that language. 
And here in the prayer, we're about to see that Jesus is speaking about the relationship his followers have with the world that is around them. Basically, Jesus says, Father, I know I'm leaving soon. I'm out of here. But these guys, my disciples, they got to stay. And the world is pretty hostile. They're going to find it a not friendly environment. And so there's some things that he prays about. Look with me in verse 11 of John 17. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That's the text. Now let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray in the name of Jesus, just like Angel prayed a moment ago. She remarked on the fact that you pray for us. And we think that you were thinking of your disciples, those that followed you then, and your disciples now, those who follow you here and now, us. And you could see what we need, and you could, you could pray for what was most important. In effect, what is your will for us? So help us, Lord, as we now examine and unpack the truths of the prayer that we are eavesdropping on to understand our relationship with the world that we live in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the paragraph that we just read, I want to give you four principles that come out of the text that speak about how we relate our relationship to the outside world. I'll give them to you. One, two, three, four. They're in your worship folder as well. Number one, we live in a dangerous place or we're in a dangerous position. As I uh, read through what you and I just read a moment ago, I counted 12 usages of a single word. The word world is repeated 12 times in nine verses. The world, the world, the world. That's what he's praying about. The disciples in the relationship with the world. Five times a phrase appears in the same paragraph. It's the phrase in the world. They are in the world. Another five times the phrase of the world appears. They are not of the world, Jesus says five times. So here, to sum it up, Jesus says, here's the relationship, here's the position, and this is why it's dangerous. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. And to top it all off, if you look down in verse 14, something else, the world has hated them. You get the picture? You're in it, you're not of it, the world hates you. It's hard to be in something that you're not a part of that hates you. Now, here's the question. 
What does Jesus mean by the term the world? It's an important question because 209 times the New Testament uses the word world. It's used three different ways. It's used one way here. But it's an important question to ask, what does the New Testament mean principally when it refers to the world? Because if we're in it and not of it, we've got to know what it is. Here's a couple more usages. Paul will say this in the book of Romans. Don't be conformed to this world. Or don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, one translation puts it. John will write in 1 John, I think chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Whoever or if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it behooves us to know exactly what the Bible means by the term the world if we're not to love it. And if we love it, it means that we're not loving God. So what is it? Well, I mentioned the Bible uses it three different ways. Number one, it speaks of the physical world, the world of God's creation. In Acts chapter 17, Paul addresses the crowd and he says, God who made the world and everything that is in it. It's the created world that God made. So when the Bible says don't love the world, it doesn't refer to the physical world. It doesn't mean that you're to hate rocks and trees and grass and you're supposed to stand in front of a tree and go, I hate you. Somebody says, what are you doing? Well, the Bible says don't love the world. Well, it doesn't mean it that way. Because Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In fact, I believe that once you become a Christian, you actually appreciate the created world more than you did before because now you have a relationship with the one who made it. Now you look at it through different eyes. Now the environment that you're in, you go, wow, this is a gift from God. I don't know how unbelieving scientists do it. They have to look around at the marvelous beauty, order, and design and say, what a beautiful accident. We know who did it. We love God for it. So it means, number one, the created world, the physical world, the universe. A second way the term is used is to speak of the world of mankind, humankind, people. John said, quoting Jesus, For God so loved the world. What did he mean? It wasn't the created physical universe as much as the people who occupy the planet. God loves people. So when the Bible says you and I are not to love the world, it can't mean we're not to love the world of people, right? If God loved the world of people, then we would love the world of people. And Jesus said you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're called to love people. But here's the danger. The danger is that, yes, we appreciate the physical universe God has made. Yes, we love people in the world. But anytime we place the environment or other people above our love for God, we're in trouble. Some people talk all about the environment, the environment, the environment. And people, people, people. Good, great. But don't let that eclipse your love, first of all, for God. Augustine wrote these words. To love the world and fail to love God would be like a bride who, being given a ring by her bridegroom, loves the ring more than the bridegroom who gave it. Of course, she should love what the bridegroom gave her, but to love the ring and despise him who gave it is to reject the very meaning of the ring as a token of his love. 
So we've covered two usages of the term the world. The physical world, the world of people. Here's the third usage. It's the most prominent usage in the New Testament. It is the way Jesus intends it primarily here. It's the world as an ethical system. The word cosmos, which is the Greek word for world, we get the word cosmic from it or cosmopolitan from it, comes from a verb that means to set things in order or to arrange. So the term, the idea of the world is the world system. The way the values, the way the principles, the way the activities are all arranged in order with their own way of thinking, standards, and philosophies. So it's the world system. So here we are in a physical world, surrounded by a world of people, but dominated by a world system, get this, a world system whose values, standards, and ideas are controlled by the devil. Now, with some people, there's an immediate disconnect. Whoa! That's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible calls Satan in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who believe not. So here we are in a physical universe filled with a world of people dominated by a system that is opposed to the values and standards of God. That's the world we're not to be conformed to. That's the world we're not to be led by. That's the world we're not to love. And when we do, it's dangerous. So here we are. We're in it. We're not of it. And that poses, let's call it an occupational hazard. If you love Jesus, there's an occupational hazard to following him. Look at verse 14. The world has hated them. That's the occupational hazard. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. See, as long as you're in this world, but you don't share their system of values, their ethics, then you are ignorant, arrogant, intolerant, and blind. That's how they view it. You are so intolerant because you don't agree with me, they will say, or they will mean. So... You're in it, you're not of it, and because you're not of it, they don't like you. Now, you can be an atheist, that's okay. You can be an agnostic, that's okay. You can be foul-mouthed, that's okay. You can drink a lot, that's okay. You can be sexually promiscuous, that's okay. You can even be mildly religious. But as the moment, as long as you say, I love Christ, there's a target on you. The world hated them because they are not of the world. So you see, this principle is stated pretty strongly here and elsewhere. We are in a dangerous position. Let me give you the second principle now. It's important at this point to get reassured a little bit. Because though we're in a dangerous position, we're given God's protection. There's a word that is also repeated a few times. It's the word keep or kept. means guarded. Verse 11, Jesus said, Father, keep them, keep them, guard them. And then later on, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them, protect them, guard them. Please notice that when Jesus prays for his men who are in this world, hated by the world, he doesn't pray a prayer of escapism. He doesn't say, Father, help them all to find a nice little cave somewhere where they can store food and ammunition and whale blubber for the future. 
It's not a prayer of escape. It's a prayer of integration. It's a prayer of being a missionary. They're here. They're in it. They're hated by it. Keep them. Years ago in church history, there was the idea that if you leave the world, leave the world of people, and isolate yourself in the desert or in the forest or in a monastery, that's the only way you're going to be able to manage and cope. There was a whole movement during church history called the monastic movement, a movement toward monasteries or isolationism. People withdrew to stay pure. And there's all sorts of interesting stories of how people sought to escape. Some lived in the fields and grazed like cattle because they thought that's holiness. I'm eating like a cow. I'm holy. Really? I think it's weird. (laughs) One person was regarded, had the reputation for being so utterly holy because he never changed his clothes and he never bathed. I don't want to be that holy. Probably the most famous story in antiquity comes from the 5th century Uh, A monk by the name of Simeon Stylites, who lived for 30 years on top of a 60-foot-high pillar. He became a tourist attraction, that he would be up there day and night, day and night, manage to get food and then go back up day and night. For 30 years, he lived atop of a pillar, and it just so impressed people. Wow, that guy must be really holy. And so... Others sought to emulate him, and there's a story of one who was a wannabe kind of a recluse, and he saw what Simeon Stylites had done, except he didn't have a pillar, and he lived in the city. So what he did is he took a chair and put it on his kitchen table, that was his pillar, put a sheet around him like a a contemplation cloth, and he just thought, this is so, this is it. And everything was good till his family came home and said, what are you doing up there sitting on a chair on the kitchen table? And he got down and he writes later on these words. I soon perceived it's a very difficult thing to be a saint while living with your own family. (laughs) Now I see why Simeon Stylites and Jerome went out to the desert. Listen, we don't need saints on pillars. We need saints behind desks and in hospitals and in the workforce integrating with our culture. Besides that, you can do all of those things to sequester yourself away and still be a very worldly person. If you read the stories of those recluses and those monks, they battled so often with lust and bad thoughts. And to counteract the bad thoughts they had while they were alone in their room, they would sometimes go out and throw themselves into a thorn bush so as not to have bad, lustful thoughts. Now they have to think about the wounds they've incurred. Which I never thought was a good idea because it would always be a dead giveaway, right? As to what you've been thinking lately. You come back to the monastery, it's like, dude, your mind has been in the gutter, huh? No, really, I just fell. (laughs) Verse 11, look at it with me. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name. I love that. It means protect. That's how the NIV renders it. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now Jesus said, I did it. I kept them. While I was with them, 
I made sure they were protected. I kept them. But now that I'm leaving them, it's really important, Father, that you take and maintain that and that you keep them. Now, we mentioned before the first time that if Jesus is praying this and he's praying the perfect will of God, you can be assured it's going to be answered. So please let this be an assurance to you. Some timid Christians will sometimes say, how do I know I'm even going to make it through? And I often will smile and say, because I know him. I know him. And he can keep you and he will keep you. The Bible promises that. You'll make it through. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, I know whom I have believed. I love that. Not I know what I believe. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And if you have committed you to him, he will keep you till the very end. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Right? He who has begun a good work will complete it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. God is not like me. I have so many unfinished projects here and there and everywhere. And it's not like God goes, oh yeah, you, I forgot about you, but I can't get to you for a while. I'm so busy over here. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Some of you say, wait a minute. I, I looked at verse 12 too. What about, what about that guy? Because Jesus said, I, I've kept, and none of them is lost, except, we're uncomfortable with that word, except whom? The son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas Iscariot. So you might be wondering, well, why didn't Jesus keep him? Listen, you've got to want to be kept. Judas never did. He wasn't kept because he never wanted to be kept. There's evidence that he was never a true believer. He just sort of went along with the crowd. He just went to church, just opened the book to the right verse, sang the right songs. His heart was never changed. His heart was never touched. He didn't follow Christ. He just went along for the joyride. But those that truly believed, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, knowing that God keeps us produces stability. Not knowing that God keeps us produces instability. There's a lot of unstable Christians because they just haven't got the grip on God's preserving, keeping, protecting hand that is not based on you or your nature or your activity, but God's. You know what it's like? It's like if you go on a trip, you've got it all planned out, and then you discover you've taken the wrong turn and you're lost now, and now you panic well, you might not panic. I did. I uh, had moved to uh, Albuquerque. I hadn't seen much of the state. Our son was born. He was a little baby. And I said to my wife, let's see the state. Let's go down to White Sands. Now, you would think, well, that's pretty easy. You'd never get lost there. But I did. And I took the wrong turn. I ended up in a little town called Carrizoso. Ever been there? I had never been there. And I thought I had been transported 200 years back to the wild, wild west. Because my son is in the back seat and he was vomiting, so I knew he had a fever. My car was on the blink, so I needed to get a car fixed and I needed to find a doctor. Neither was a possibility where I was. They said, oh, we don't have a doctor in these parts. A nurse comes twice a week. That's it. And uh, you can't get your car fixed for about 150 miles. So now I started panicking because 
I thought I was on the right road, on the right track. Everything was flowing the way I wanted to. Now it's very disorienting. That's what believers are like who don't have a firm grip on the keeping power of God. So we're in a dangerous position, but we're given God's protection in this world. Here's the third principle. We need spiritual preparation. We need spiritual preparation. Now, I don't know about you, but I am glad and I am grateful and I thank God that I'm going to be kept in this world, that I have that promise. But frankly, that's not enough. I want more. I don't want to just make it through to the end. I want to make it through well. I want to finish well. I don't want to just get to heaven and go, man, I made it. Awesome. I'll be saying that, but I want to say by God's grace, while I was here, I was ready for the task and prepared for the task to make a difference. Now, how is that possible? In, in a single word, by the truth. That's the word, truth. You and I need steady doses of sanctifying truth if we're going to make any impact at all in this world. Look at the 17th verse. Notice the prayer Jesus prays to his Father. Sanctify them. I know that's an old-fashioned Bible word. It means consecrate them, set them apart, um, dedicate them. It could also be translated prepare them. Move them aside and prepare them. Get them ready. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified by the truth. It's the truth. This is how you can be in the world and not of the world. This is how you can be kept from the evil that is all around you by the truth. This is how we can stand against a world that hates our gospel and hates those of us who preach it. And if you're going to make any impact in this dangerous world, it's because of the truth. You've got to know it and believe it. You know, there's something compelling, even attractive, about a person who believes the truth with such deep conviction. It moves people when they find that kind of authority and authenticity. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say, set a man on fire and people will come to watch him burn. There was a man named David Hume. If you took philosophy, you know him well. He was a philosopher. Uh, He claimed to be a deist. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the person of Christ. He didn't believe in salvation, etc. Didn't believe in the cross and atonement. Didn't believe the Bible was inspired. And... um, One evening he was going through the streets of London and somebody recognized him and said, you're David Hume, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. He said, well, where are you off to? He said, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. And the man was taken aback and said, George Whitfield, you don't believe a word he says. He goes, no, I don't, but he does. And there's just something compelling that brought David Hume out of his house to listen to somebody who really believed what he preached. Set a man on fire and people will come to watch him burn. And the same has been true with Dr. Billy Graham all these years, who has stood in stadiums around the world and from his 
from his youth all the way to his old age, he's always said, the Bible says, an often quoted refrain, the Bible says, the Bible says, and it's the truth that he passionately believed. People are drawn to that. So the truth is what preserves you. It's what prepares you. This world system will eat you alive if you don't get tethered and anchored to biblical truth. If you're like, well, I don't really know what I believe. I don't really know if that's true. Then you're, James put it beautifully, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And if you're double-minded about the Bible, you'll be like a buoy bouncing up and down in the sea, right? But to hold to it firmly is what prepares you and I to do something in this world. Again, Charles Spurgeon said so many cool things. He said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. I like that. Look at a person's life. They're just on course, confidence, trusting the Lord. Look at their Bible. They've been in it a lot. Pretty beat up, probably. That doesn't mean you should go take your Bible home, run over with your car, and tear a few pages out, and write a bunch of stuff, and go, see? Spiritual, huh? But this is why we tell people, buy a Bible, own a Bible, bring a Bible to church, read it frequently so it becomes yours. It's the truth you refer to. That is how you will be prepared. Constant, steady doses of sanctifying truth prepare you. So our position, we're in the world, not of it. Our protection, God promises to keep you like Jesus kept his own. Our preparation, the Word of God. That's why we come every week. Get fed. Get prepared. And the fourth is, is really ties it all together. To, to me, this is the best part. This is the graduation part. This is where you graduate. Because what good is it to be so prepared and so protected if you're not going to really do anything with it? And this is the permeation phase. That's the fourth principle. We've been called to permeation. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Let that phrase just sort of seep into your heart for a minute. Think of that. Break it up. Jesus recognizes, I have been sent into this world by my Father. I'm on a mission from God. He knows what the cross is all about. He knows why He's here. I've been sent by you, Father. In the same way that I've been sent on a mission, I have commissioned them. I have sent them into the world. Now, would you allow me to have you look at another verse alongside of that to compare one verse with this verse? Because I want you to see something. I think it's vital. Go back to verse 6, part of the same prayer. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See how this all works? He takes you out of the world spiritually. That's salvation. You're not part of the world. You're part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the church. Different value system. Different way of living. Taking you out of the world, that's salvation. He's cleaned you up, that's sanctification. Then he puts you back into the world. That's mission. 
That's impact. That's evangelism. Out, cleansed, and then, hey, guess what? You're going back. And now you can really affect it. I want to close by having you with me in your mind. Just compare different ways throughout history, up to this present time, that Christians have related to the world. And we'll end on this one real briefly. Number one, historically, one of the means that Christians have related to their world is to isolate, to isolate, isolate themselves. That's the whole monastery idea. World is bad. I have to leave all of it and I have to find a lonely, quiet place and be away from it for me to even cope. That's to isolate. That's what monasteries are all about. It seemed to serve some well. I don't think it's the appropriate response. I've even heard that idea in conversations. We had a conversation some years back, and I remember someone said to me, Skip, would it be cool if every neighbor in your neighborhood loved Jesus? And if the guy at the post office and at the grocery store, they were all Christians, and, and everybody in the police force and the fire, all of them loved Jesus, and everybody in the town you lived in, if everybody was a Christian, think how cool that would be. I said, friend, you just described heaven. That's the millennium you're talking about. And that's wonderful. But that ain't going to happen. And to say, let's go create one doesn't serve this world any good. So that's number one, to isolate. Response number two is to insulate. The world is bad. I've got to protect myself, protect my family from all the bad influences of the world. So I'll just kind of, we're here, but not really here. And, and, and so I'll be over here and I'll point my finger at the world and say, bad, 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 bad. But I won't really do anything about it because I'm insulated from it. There was a group in the New Testament that tried that. They were called Pharisees. That's what they were called. Pharisees is a word that means the separated ones. They were insulated from the world, separated from the world. They would walk through the streets of their town, especially Jerusalem, with their robes tightly around their bodies, heads down so as not to make eye contact with the Gentile, robes close to them so they wouldn't touch you or I and get cooties. So that's how they would be insulated from it. Oh, by the way, the Pharisees pointed at the world and said, bad, 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 bad. But never once do you read of a Pharisee doing evangelism. Never once. Never reaching out to win a soul. A third response is to vegetate. Not isolate, not insulate, but to vegetate. This is the apathetic Christian. Whatever, world's going to hell, I'll let it. All I care about is personal comfort along the way. I just want my share now. It's a very, very sad state when a person comes to the vegetate phase. A fourth response of believers has been not to isolate, not to insulate, not to vegetate, but to imitate. And this is the believer who says, well, you know what? If we're ever going to reach the world, we really have to be worldly and be worldlike. And once they see we're as cool as they are, then they're going to listen to us. No, they won't. You have no message for them at this point. None. Because they can get you anywhere else. They can get your message anywhere else. It's when you're different. That's what the word holy means, sanctified. It's so in stark contrast to where they're at that they may listen.
They won't listen if you're just like them. What are they changing from and changing to? The fifth response and the final one is the best one. It's the biblical one. It's the one Jesus prays for. It's not to isolate. It's not to insulate. It's not to vegetate. It's not to imitate. It's to permeate. It's to get called out of the world system, get saved and cleansed by Jesus, and put right back in to make a difference, to make an impact. So he says, I pray that, I don't pray you take them out of the world physically. You keep them from the evil one. And verse 18, I sent them into this world. Jesus will say, you are the salt of the earth. Get that picture. Salt would be pushed into corrupted meat to preserve it. It is contact without contamination. It's making a difference. So to sum it up, our place as the believer in this world is twofold. We're to be in the Word and we're to be in the world. Not one or the other. Both. In the Word, in the world. See, if you're just in the world all week long, around the world, listening to what the world says, listening to the worldly music, listening to worldly stuff, and you're not in the Word... You're going to become like the world because you're in the world, not in the word. But if you're in the word all week, the word, the Bible prayer, that's good. I, I do it all the time. But if you don't make contact with the world, you get fat and sassy. Spiritually speaking, the Christian needs the word, but the Christian also needs the world. You understand the Christian needs the word, but the Christian needs the world. I found an interesting illustration years ago when they were trying to bring codfish from the East Coast out to the West, because an appetite had developed for it here, um, they first tried shipping it out frozen. They would freeze it, ship it out, thaw it out, eat it. But they discovered it lost a lot of its flavor from what they remember having it fresh out of the sea in the East Coast. Number two, they tried to ship it in tanks of seawater, but... It was more expensive, took a lot longer. By the time it got here, the fish was mushier, mushier. They just didn't work. They tried, and, and this is where they succeeded. They, they tried by putting it in tanks of seawater, bunch of the codfish, but inserting into the tanks one or two catfish, which is the natural enemy of the codfish, so that from the east coast to the west, the entire journey The catfish was chasing the codfish all around the tank, all around the tank, all around the tank. By the time they got here, fresh, textured, firm, flavorful. Found out that the codfish needs the catfish. Christians need the word. Christians need the world. We need to be in the word and then send into the world to make a difference. When you live that way, you're really living I'm going to read a little poem as we close. There's just four lines. Don't worry. (laughs) There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And when one day he passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claim he never died. If you really want to live, not just exist, or make it through to heaven by the grace of God. You want to live. Get turned loose for Jesus. We've been in the Word. Now the salt shaker gets turned upside down and the salt gets poured out into the community. 
And that's where we make impact. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Lord, we're yours. We're your people. We're simple people. We're sinful people. Whom you have saved. You've taken us out of the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. We don't belong to it. It's not our home. We have a very different kingdom and a different set of values and a different king. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us, that you are keeping us, and that you will prepare us. But now, Lord, as you send us, I pray that great things would be accomplished as we become your instruments in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.